I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. We are coming back to you from the Credo House. This is Theology Unplugged, and we are continuing our discussion on evangelicalism. Now, we're not going to jump into all the announcements and the different things that we normally do, Tim. We did that pretty well last time. Just know you can go to the credohouse.org website if you're locally, find out the events that are coming up, or just come to reclaimingthemind.org and see um, the coffee talk or the the uh, coffee talks that was that was seven years ago at, at uh, Stonebriar we used to do those uh, the boot camps discipleship program theology program all starting very soon and by the time that this uh, broadcast is online it should be on a new website as well so we're really excited so I'm holding you to that yes yes I've, I've put the mark in the sand so in the sand not in stone but welcome to the new website as well hope you enjoy it yeah yeah Sam great to have you join us again thank you very much oh it's my pleasure to be here uh, we are talking about evangelicalism folks and we're trying to define evangelicalism we've been trying to define evangelicalism I've presented last time my chart on evangelicalism, which I thought was going to be the definitive chart on evangelicalism. I thought it would probably turn into a stamp. I actually got stamps <laughs> for you guys. And, and I figured Is that, this tattooed on your shoulder? I, I was going to say, this could be all of our first tattoos. Um, it's in your lower back down yeah, low, right? But, but you guys are picking it apart, and you're trying to trying to question everything that I do. Hey, you solicited, you solicited the uh, criticism. Well, so well, I, then, I do like the color scheme, though. Thanks. I, I kinda, <laughs> the, the tone, the soft colors. Yeah. Are we doing okay, though? Because you you know asked us, and we did criticize it pretty heavily. I just want to make sure well, that let we're me, still... Let, let me, Catch our audience we're still back friends. up. Let me catch our audience back up. And no, we're not still friends, but that doesn't mean anything because we weren't really that good of friends to begin with. You know, I'm not. I, that, part of our chart here is passionate, merciful, humility, non-judgmental, and I don't qualify right now. That hurts. No. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. Three key elements for evangelicalism: right belief. Right practice and right attitude. Now, last time you said that this is just a general discipleship chart, which I took offense at, you know, because, yeah. because yes, of course it is. But what I'm, what I've done here is I've tried to include that all of these not only must be present for us to define what an evangelical is, but also certain elements within each one must be present. Mm-hmm. In orthodoxy, I said that you have to believe in the Nicene Creed. Trinity, Christ, Salvation by faith alone, sola fide, and sola scriptura, that the scripture alone is our final source of authority. Within the, within the orthopathy or orthopraxy, right practice, I believe that in, as an evangelical, we have to have family values. You have to have evangelical outreach, or at least aspirations for these things. I mean, we, we want these things. This is part of our passion. This is part of what makes us up as who we are. Social engagement is another one of those. We don't just let the culture die and say, well, you know, let somebody else take care of it, and we're not called to that type of thing. We're called to a personal uh, trust in Christ, and that's it. And also, it's an attitude. And whenever I mean this, I'm not saying that we are not passionate because I've got in here orthopathy that we are very passionate. But within our passions, we have humility. 
within our passions, we have uh, a a sense of liberty and a sense of kindness. The Sam, last time you talked a lot about this, and I, I felt like that, that expressed an evangelical attitude. One of you said, listen, we are not saying that these other people that are outside of this or don't believe the exact way we do aren't saved. We talked a little bit about Clark Pinnock and whether or not he's uh, evangelical and expressed uh, some key areas where he might differ from traditional evangelicalism, even traditional Christianity, but as you said, the guy's in heaven because he loved Christ. That is the type of attitude that I'm talking about here, mm -hmm. a passionate attitude that is committed to the faith, yet at the same time, we recognize that those people who are outside of our fold, that are outside of evangelicalism, may be very good Christians and love the Lord just as much, if not more, than we do. But at the same time, that doesn't cause us to blur the lines and say it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Sam, last time we were talking about... Um, um, uh, the authority of Scripture, and we were centering around this term semper reformanda. What does semper reformanda meant historically, and where does that come from? Well, the basic meaning of it is that the church is always reforming, that the church is always subject to um, the Word of God through the power of the Spirit bringing about change while core truths remain immutable we always contend as jude says for the faith once for all delivered to the saints there is an outworking there is an expansive development in seeing what the implications of that may be and in other words we're always uh, if we have a, a church in place and we have an established structure and we have a governmental um, a system and we have ministries and programs we are always subjecting those to the light of scripture and saying where do we need to improve uh, is is a particular uh, expression of our life as a as a church outmoded are we have we become irrelevant how can we communicate more effectively uh, the basic truths of the gospel. So there's always development and change and modification and expression, and we hope deepening in holiness at the same time that the core theological foundations remain um, uh, unchanged. So certainly Christians are always reforming in the sense we would call it sanctification. Uh, churches are always reforming in the sense of growth and adaptation, uh, you know, we could even use the very controversial word contextualization um, at the same time without losing the fundamental truths of orthodox belief. Okay, so whenever we are reforming, we are saying that, uh, uh, that there's a, there is the outward expression of our faith that is reforming, no doubt, especially as we, as we, move forward with the gospel into different cultures and as the culture changes we're saying that the church and the expressions can change yet at the same time the core truths well take take the uh, the transition from fundamentalism to evangelicalism that we've witnessed in the last 100 100 years um, i think most of what funda Amer early american fundamentalists believed was true theologically i'm probably fairly closely aligned with them but there was significant change and development and reformation, so to speak, in terms of their orthopraxy and orthopathy, uh, because I think they were not, as we've said earlier, they were not given to uh, what I would consider to be biblical expressions of those two dimensions. And so what you are advocating in your chart, I think, is a, is a more holistic ideal toward which 
evangelicalism ought to be moving. Um, I, yeah. that, that sounds more positive than that does. Is. That does because then you can shoot holes. <laughs> I, in I just got head. chills. Yeah, I did. Too. I did too. Yeah. So maybe at the bottom you need to include that, like the holistic ideal. But then, then it sounds emerging holism. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're having a conversation about a journey, so yeah, we need so, to just fess up. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I actually, I, I felt chills too. And, and so, <laughs> felt like I was reforming there. And thankfully, we have it recorded. A lot of times when you say stuff like that, you're like. Oh, if only I could have had that recorded. So there we have it. Well, but it is holistic. It is an attempt, and I and I applaud uh, applaud you for that. It is an attempt to say it's not enough just to affirm what we believe. Yeah. That that the Christianity we read about in Scripture calls for certain behavioral expressions that are, are consistent with what the, the Word of God sets forth, and that there are affections of the heart, and there are relational. Uh, dynamics uh, that ought to exist among Christians. That you, none of the things you have there: humility and mercy and passion, and being non-judgmental. Um, these are obviously ideals toward which all Christians ought to be moving. Um, the question again, of course, becomes: uh, Should they be included in your circle of what constitutes genuine evangelicalism? Uh, well, ideally, yes. Um, whether or not it's realistic is another matter and open for debate. It is, and none of us are going to be perfect. Simper Reformanda, though. Uh, when we're talking about Simper Reformanda, uh, I think we can say that um, our understanding, you know, the key doctrinal values don't change. Once you begin to reform those doctrinal things, uh, the, the, the things that uh, we would say are, are so incredibly important to our 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 faith as it has been handed to us you notice the ancient future on here you know that's kind of the weber uh terminology uh robert weber i, I like that terminology uh simply because it, it ties us into the past but it pushes us towards the future we're tied in the past but once you begin to say you know what i'm going to reevaluate and possibly change this particular doctrine what are those what are those things that uh uh, cross over the line to where we can't change. I put down here Nicene Creed, Creed of Chalcedon, Sola Fide, Sola Scriptura. However, I didn't put down here something such as uh, uh, maybe we should include this just because it's timely, but the doctrine of the atonement. is the doctrine of the atonement, I believe, throughout church history has developed that the DNA was there at the very beginning. Christ died for us. Well, what does that mean? As it goes through ch- history and goes through the the um, Anselmic uh, uh, Reformation of the Atonement, and we begin to understand more deeply that that Christ died for us to not only to just take our sins, but also to to take our sins because the Father demanded it, because God Himself demands that we ha- He has a payment for the sins. Developed even further during the Reformation, I would believe, to what we call substitutionary, vicarious substitutionary atonement. Now, as for me, I believe that vicarious substitutionary atonement is part of our heritage. And it's something that uh, we have been handed. Now, we have many people who say, well, we, I don't believe or outright denying vicarious substitutionary atonement or at least modifying it mm-hmm. to some degree to where the DNA doesn't look like it did before. Yeah, and, that, and I would have serious uh, problems with that because, as we, as I mentioned in, uh, I think, our very first broadcast on this subject, 
Um, the word evangelical is built around the word evangel, which is the gospel. And my own conviction is at the core of the gospel is the cross and uh, the nature of what was accomplished there. And if there is no um, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, the cross is emptied of its significance. And if that is the case, we have no gospel, we have no evangel, we have no evangelical or evangelicalism. So I would, and that's why I like uh, the, I don't know, the people listening can't see the chart as we can, but you have the cross at the center uh, of the circle there. It says Christocentric, and of course then one of the four um, uh, words that you have circling it is gospel. So I would ha- I would be very reluctant to include with, under the uh, heading of evangelicalism anyone who has repudiated uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, Sam, can you just elevator give us the the elevator story of what is penal substitutionary atonement and how does that differ from what someone else who may consider themselves a v- evangelical would believe? Well, the question I think can can be simplified and made easy, uh, brought down to earth by simply asking the question: What is it about the death of Jesus that saves us? Um, and my understanding is is that uh, what was accomplished in the cross of Christ is, and and again, I, I maybe want to extend it a little bit more holistically and say he lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we deserve to die. Um, and that in his dying, uh, he endured and uh, suffered within himself uh, the penalty, the, the, the wrath of God, which uh, we deserved, and in doing so, propitiated, satisfied, appeased the Father. All the demands of holiness against um, a, a fallen race were met and fulfilled in what he accomplished at Calvary. Uh, that it's penal because there was a penalty uh, that comes with the violation of God's law. It's substitutionary because the penalty was endured by one person on behalf of or in the place of others. And in doing so, he made atonement. He reconciled us to the Father. Um, others would, uh, you know, they have objections to that, and they have all sorts of, uh, uh, I think, uh, misunderstandings of what that entails. There are some who would say, well, we're not so much denying penal substitution. We're simply saying it's only one facet of a multifaceted uh, reality that was accomplished at the cross. We need to re- see the cross as um, Christ having conquered the powers of evil and uh, having uh, triumphed over Satan and his demons, uh, that the cross was uh, the expression of the uh, goodness of God in basically declaring that he would not allow um, um, his universe uh, to um, uh, to live in defiance of, the, of his law, or it was an expression of the love of Jesus for broken people, or it was a way in which Christ identified with mankind. But all of those dimensions, as much as they may be true, and each of them has a, an element of truth in it, are only valid if, in fact, at the at the core, what he did was to endure the wrath of God that sinners deserved and all of those to have experienced qualified him for such too yes yes so you know the uh, you know the, the illustration that's often used is if uh, if we're walking alongside a group of us alongside lake hefner and uh, tim suddenly uh, yells at the top of his lungs i want all of you to notice how much i love you and he goes and he jumps out in the middle of the lake and drowns 
Well, that's not an expression of love. I mean, that's an expression of lunacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, on the other hand, um, uh, you and I are in the middle of Lake Hefner drowning, and um, Tim, uh, you know, sacrifices his life to bring us to shore, that would qualify, at least in, in a manner of speaking. So, when we look at the cross of Christ, why would we call it an act of love? Yeah, it's only an act of love if, in fact. In his dying there, he is dying my death. So that's the core of the atonement. Uh, I believe in dying our death, he conquered Satan. I believe that in dying our death, he manifested uh, the love of God. I believe that in dying our death, he has set us an example for how we are to respond to those who hate and persecute us. Uh, That in dying our death, um, he has... um, uh, he has provided us with an inspirational model for how we are to uh, relate to other people. But all those things are true and relevant only if, in fact, he is dying our death, mm. only if he is as a substitute enduring uh, the wrath of God that we deserved. So I don't see penal substitution as simply one facet or one part uh, uh, or kind of one slice of the pie. I would see it more in terms of, uh, it is the foundational truth out of which all these other realities emerge and make sense, without yeah. which they cannot make sense. It's the foundation. It's the, it's the cornerstone. It's the capstone. It's, it's what the gospel ultimately is right. about. Yeah, and, and we could even create our own circle here and put it at the center and see the, 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 the various spokes of the wheel, so to speak, as being um, these other dimensions or these so-called other theories of the atonement. But if you if you empty the atoning death of Jesus of that dimension, it seems to me that when we go to proclaim the evangel to a lost and dying world, what are we telling them? Uh, what are we offering them? What are we saying about their relationship with God and what Christ means to them? Um, and if you do that, you lose the evangel. You lose the gospel. Can't imagine evangelicalism existing apart from penal substitution. And, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that we're noticing here, with regards to the ancient future and what evangelicalism at least believes that we have inherited from from the history of the church, and believes that we are carrying on that which was delivered once and for all for the saints, is this idea that not only do we have the core or the DNA of the gospel, but we have it developed through church history, mm-hmm. and, and we have it to where we say that this is the not only a right expression, but the best expression mm-hmm. of the, the cross. Whereas beforehand, some of the you know first century church fathers, we may come to them and say, Christ died for you, and they'd say yes. They'd be affirming the atonement. Christ yes. died for you. But at the same time, they may not express it the same way that we do whenever we fully begin to to uh, show how this has has developed in our understanding. And we believe the Holy Spirit has led the church through controversies and through difficulties and, and through heresies that have caused us to put flesh upon this DNA, that have caused us to develop to the point where we say penal substitutionary atonement and somebody says, no, there's nothing in the history of the church before Calvin or before Anselm which could, could justify such. We say, no, the DNA is there, but we have been handed a more fully developed version. Well, right. As far as I can tell, um, you know, if you were to read your uh, English Bible, I don't think the word penal or substitution or atonement is found. So we're using terminology, 
theological language to account for biblical text. So if you had talked to somebody before Anselm about how does the death of Christ save, they might have just simply recited a text. Yeah. They might have just cited 1 Peter 3, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous, died, the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And they understand the just dying for the unjust, you know, in his perfect sinless life and his and in his death in my place. He's for, just in the place of, for the unjust, me, one who otherwise deserved that death. So they they would have spoken more in simply biblical language, biblical terminology, citing biblical texts. Um, and we're just simply saying that penal substitutionary atonement is a helpful way of explaining what those biblical texts mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tim? Yeah, I totally agree. I think one thing that came to my mind that I think is interesting is earlier on in the series we talked about some of the drawbacks or what we thought were the negative or weaknesses of evangelicalism. And one that you brought up was the gospel, that it's a great strength. And so it's interesting that it feels like we've come full circle in some ways of saying the gospel is still we're wrestling with it even in this chart of what the gospel is as it relates to the atonement. And then the second one I thought of was uh, ecclesiology, that we don't have any board that governs this. We don't have any pope that says, you are doing it, you aren't doing it, so get in line, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. That it's it's this is a loose thing, which I think makes it uh, a phenomenon that we struggle with because the gospel, it seems like, is still can still be lost in evangelicalism even though we we assume that it's the center and we're saying we the ideal is for it to be the center but we recognize that that years and generations can go by where where you start looking at the periphery and forgetting the center uh, then with this idea of we don't have an ecclesiology that directs us to pull this off yeah and here's and here's the other factor that and this opens up a whole new can of worms is obviously um it seems obvious to me anyway that given your chart, you envision evangelicalism as a distinctively Protestant phenomenon. Yes. Uh, because um, there are many within the Roman Catholic Church who would affirm penal substitutionary atonement, mm. as would those within Eastern Orthodoxy, although in Eastern Orthodoxy they throw in the whole dimension of what's called the recapitulation theory and uh, of Irenaeus and others. But there are those within, outside the boundaries of Protestantism who would affirm uh, the same understanding of the cross of Christ as we would, and yet we would probably not in, call them evangelicals. Hmm. So affirming the Christocentric substitutionary nature of the atonement as uh, necessary for evangelicalism, we wouldn't say it is sufficient that there are other aspects that must be embraced in order to fall within That's this. That's right. I mean, or, not, not or, are you including that in your Semper Reformanda as well, though, that we're continually protesting against the Roman Catholic Church? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think we're still in protest necessarily, but we're. I, I think we're still, in, in many regards, in development, even though there's a strong stability. And that's one of the things that I try to try to get my mind around and try to communicate is that there's a very strong stability yet a moving forward. Whereas, like you said, with Eastern Orthodoxy, one of the prides that they may take and would distinguish to them from us, not only, you know, with regards to sola fide and sola scriptura, uh, as they believe in the, you know, the infallibility of the seven councils or the, uh, the ecumenical councils, which we would disagree with, um, is that we have not, and I said this last time, we have not made camp. Right. 
Um, we believe that there is a there is an ancient future aspect to our faith. Our liturgy in church, the way we do church, we haven't made camp. We haven't said this is the way to do liturgy. This is the way to present the gospel. This is the way in all societies, although, you know, sometimes we do have our missionary movements where we try to reproduce our American Baptist churches over in Romania, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that, that's not really what we're, evangelicalism is about because we believe that the gospel can take shape. The, the essentials of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the, 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 the orthopraxy, orthopathy, orthodoxy can take shape and, and can revolutionize in different ways, mm-hmm. and that there's a great deal of freedom, as Alistair McGrath put it in his uh, book on the history of the Reformation, said, or Protestantism, and, and talking about Protestantism, said one of the reasons why Protestantism has lasted is because it does have the ability to take shape. It does have the ability to reform, to change. And I think that that's something that we have to not only embrace. Once we quit embracing that, I believe that we have become more towards fundamentalism once we stop and make camp. Well, let me ask you a question because today we don't say, hey, I'm a French Huguenot or Huguenot or whatever. The We don't say that because that was a phenomenon in a certain place at a certain time. Is it okay for us to say uh, 300 years from now people say, Oh yeah, evangelicalism was a wonderful movement that was a phenomenon at this place at this time. We still hold to many of those things, but we evangelicalism was time bound and it's not moving forward anymore. Would that is that okay if that happened, or would we saying this is adaptable enough that evangelicalism should be the prominent movement until Christ returns? Well, evangelicalism can shed its name. And I believe that these three, if you take away the name of evangelicals, like, you know, whenever Calvin talked about the Trinity, he said, I don't care what terms you use, as long as you say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and they're not each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 uh, the, the understanding and the terminology, whatever, can take on whatever names you want. And I would say the same thing with this. It doesn't have to be evangelicalism. It doesn't have to be called that. But as long as we have these things, we are holding on to the core essentials, the, the core doctrinal essentials, um, even if we say later on we understand these better, mm-hmm. not different, but better in relation to other things, um, as long as we have the right attitude, the right practice, the engagement, the, the spreading of the gospel, then I would say whatever name it goes by, it doesn't matter. This is the best expression, I believe, because of its, because of its uh, values and the way it understands itself to be able to adapt. Yeah, and that's, I mean, coming back to something you mentioned in the previous program, people are, are, are predicting the death of evangelicalism. Um, and I would, I would stand on the side of those who say that evangelicalism can never die in this, because, um, I, I believe that, as Jesus said, um, the church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Um, but you're right, the term may disappear. It may become so volatile, so inflammatory, so, squishy and meaningless who knows as we continue to debate this issue that we find that it just just falls into disuse um but in terms of the faith for once for all delivered to the saints will never die or disappear and there will always be a church that is um attempting to define the parameters and the boundaries of what is orthodoxy uh, and orthopraxy and orthopathy so i don't think evangelicalism as an as a as a kind of a 
spiritual reality will ever die any more than God can. Amen. All right. I just so come, Lord Jesus. Too, huh? Yeah, definitely. He's spoken well, through the Spirit twice today. <laughs> it was God that chart that inspired, inspired me. <laughs> the chart has been affirmed. All right. You can see the chart at reclaimingthemind.org forward slash blog. Search for Will the Re- Real Evangelical Please Stand Up. At least that way you can see where we've been, what we've been talking around exactly. and talking about. I thank you guys for joining me once again as we discuss this. Hopefully we've we, we've helped you guys out some. You know, sometimes it, it needs to be confused before it can be clarified. And maybe we've left you in confusion, but uh, hopefully it's leading towards a little bit of clarification. Uh, until next time, may God bless you. You have been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. These broadcasts are made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For more information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit our homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.